1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be discussing the 1949 Geneva Conventions, um, which are, I certainly think, and the author makes a good case for, uh, some of the most important rules for armed conflict ever formulated. Um, to tell us more about them, and particularly how they were written, um, and how they were written not just as a reaction to World War II, as we often think about, but actually as active agents thinking about what might come next in warfare. We have with us today Dr. Boyd Van Dyke, whose book, Preparing for War, The Making of the Geneva Conventions, was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So I found this book really quite interesting, going into a lot of detail and depth, explaining that these conventions are best thought of not just as a reaction, a continuation of debates that have been happening since the late 1800s, but actually forward thinking as well, Um, and that they weren't sort of created as an inevitable kind of document, that all of the different bits and pieces came from active debates and negotiations during the process that maybe explains some of the things that we do and don't find in the final conventions. Um, So I was wondering if you could maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain how you came to research these conventions in this particular way.
1: Yes, of course. Um, So the project started when I was a master's student at Columbia University. Um, At the time, uh, I was a witness to what I think was a heavily politicized debate regarding the conventions amid the so-called war on terror. The 9-11 attacks and their aftermath triggered, I think, a a strong and powerful debate surrounding the Bush administration's decision to question the extent to which the conventions were relevant for this armed conflict. So in this context, a new history of the laws of war has has emerged, and I try to um, contribute to that debate by... Getting back or returning to the 49 conventions, as you were saying, they're one of the most important rules ever formulated for armed conflict. And as a historian of Nazi occupation, which was the central theme of my previous book, I felt drawn to the idea of bringing historical insights and context to these post 9-11 discussions with regard to the laws of war. Um, So in my book, I try to historicize the convention and its changing character. To confound my readers with with Geneva's paradoxes and and contradictions so this is um this is not a story of triumph uh reconstructing the making the conventions means placing them in history um, so in my book i try to show and demonstrate how key concepts concepts that we're still using today um, um, and also there are obviously in the agreements, how they emerge, and how they accrue meaning over time. And I think recognizing this, this history, uh, it's what I think is an extraordinary history, allows the reader to better grasp the past, but also the politics of the laws of war. Especially now, as we're, we're seeing that states are contemplating new wars and, and some have already broken out in recent years years leading to a whole range of of questions about what does law do in wartime and to what extent can law limit the conduct of hostilities.
2: So that was a brilliant introduction to the book, and I think it stands to encompass kind of what you're you're doing in the whole book. Um, And so now I want to start to get into those details that you talk about, the politics of law. And to me, this really starts with understanding who is actually involved in these negotiations and these debates. Um, My own research focuses a lot on kind of the impact of who's in the room for shaping what comes next. So I think that might be a good starting point, given that it wasn't exactly um, a straightforward question of who was going to be invited to negotiate and debate the Geneva Conventions. Can you tell us a little about who got included, who got excluded and why?
1: Yeah, the question of invitation policies is a really interesting one, um, and it also touches upon questions of universality, of um, who gets to get who gets the invitation and who doesn't, and what does that tell us about the process as a whole. So I think before I go into the details about this, this question, I need to briefly give a sort of overview of, of how did this drafting process take place and who was the main organizer of, of these meetings. So the process essentially took place between 1944 and 1949. So there was both during as well as after the Second World War and amidst new civil and colonial wars that were taking place after the end of the Second World War in Europe and Asia. And most of these meetings were organized by, either the International Committee of Cross in Geneva or the Swiss federal government in Bern, and so both of in Switzerland. Um, and what is striking about how these Swiss organizers uh, were looking at the concept of universality is that they primarily saw it for the lens of the Second World War and the emerging Cold War. So fear of war between the Soviet Union and its Western adversaries was, was crucial in this regarding, in, in shaping the, the um, invitation policies of the Swiss. So basically who they were inviting and, and who they were stressing is important partners in this process. And what I found most striking is that the ICRC, like the Swiss federal government, did, did very little to ensure the participation of those who fell outside of the bipolar spectrum or came from outside broader Europe. So for instance, the Swiss the press hesitant Arab states to send more delegates to the diplomatic conference two years later, so that meaning um, the process at the end uh, the first um, drafting meetings, kind of opening meetings took place between um, 1946 and 47. And, and then eventually in 1949, we can see the diplomatic conference gathered in Geneva. And what is, what is striking is that the, this voice also did not ask members of African national liberation movements to attend debates in the capacity of, of, of full delegates or even as, as observers. So what I think it, it shows is that the Swiss believed that most non-Europeans, and that's also what you can see in, in internal documents that are gathered from Swiss archives, is that they claim that Europeans uh, had much more experience, much more wartime experience applying the laws of war than non-Europeans did. And that's 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 a um a striking uh, comment, particularly coming from from a Swiss uh the, like, for Swiss government uh, Uh, official, since they had not been in in armed conflict for for almost two two centuries. Um, So what I think it shows as well is that the Swiss were building upon what I call a pre-existing racialized outlook on the world, as well as the concept of universality. They were very reluctant to invite, therefore, a whole range of non-European revolutionary movements to participate in talks, whether Maoist in China or those fighting against colonialism, such as the uh, Indonesian Republicans. Indeed, they extended all the invitations to recognize states that had previously signed at least one of the existing Geneva Conventions. Um, so I think, coming to my conclusion, I think the, the, the result of this, this, this thinking was a highly Eurocentric drafting process in which Europeans, North Americans, and Australians uh, played a, a major part. Whereas Arab states or uh, recently um, decolonized states from from Asia played only in very specific debates a role, but usually when it came to the most important issues, um, the Europeans, including um, the Soviet Union and its its so-called satellite states, were calling the shots, they were the most influential.
2: And this idea of the impact of wartime experience really comes through in some of the debates that you discuss um, in the negotiations that we're definitely going to come to. Um, But I wanted to ask now, if we're talking about who's actually in the room doing the negotiating, there was another aspect of sort of the setting of the stage, the foundations laid, which was the sort of the thinking behind it, the different strands of thought, of experience, um, as you said, the existing Geneva Conventions at this point. Um, that I think is also sort of important to bring into the conversation. And you discuss this in particular with reference to the Civilian Convention, one part of um, what was created in these negotiations. Um, And you talk about the idea of human rights thinking. Today, maybe we think, oh, Geneva Conventions, yeah, of course it has to do with human rights. Um, But that has a very precise meaning and wasn't necessarily something that was was going to be included. Um, particularly as we'll come to speak about how the previous Geneva Conventions very much focused on, in a lot of ways, kind of traditional soldiers, not necessarily civilians. Um, So you discuss how thinking about human rights, human rights thinking, transformed the civilian convention, but also that the bringing in of that strain of thought was something that was maybe not talked about um, by the biased but still helpful um, historians of the Geneva Convention immediately afterwards. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what was the transformative impact of this human rights thinking, but then also why was its legacy sort of hidden away?
1: Yeah, so this is an important but quite complicated question because it um, forces us to think about the intellectual and of the conventions. In many ways, this is a story in which there are political actors that come to um, different conclusions or different views about how you regulate uh, war through through law um, but it's also about a clash of ideas really it's not just a clash of interest or political visions but it's also about really ideas of law in, in wartime so what is what i found interesting about this um, a kind of existing stories at the conventions is that many people that have looked at these issues in quite some detail have suggested that human rights law and humanitarian law in the 1940s were, were quite distinct, quite different in, in how they operated and what they tried to achieve. Human rights law applied to peacetime, whereas humanitarian law uh, had its relevance in wartime and so on and so forth. Um, but what I discovered when looking more closely at the, of the statements as well as internal debates within different drafting parties, including ICRC as well as important great powers, is that they talk remarkably often about human rights or human dignity and limiting state sovereignty and so on and so forth. All kinds of ideas that we see as, as typical of human rights thinking. So that created a puzzle, that created a question. How come that we don't remember this past? Um, this past being the connection between human rights law and humanitarian law in the 1940s. And indeed, how common in this century or the decades after 1949, many people try to downplay this connection. Uh, I'm not, to, of course, trying to suggest that there is a conspiracy here against human rights or anything like that. But it's, it's quite interesting to see that uh, the connection is usually um, seen as originating in the years around the late 1960s with the uh, UN Human Rights uh, Conference in Tehran rather uh, than a connection that was drawn earlier. Well, in some ways that might be just a question interesting for intellectual historians. How do we trace the history of specific concepts? But I, I felt there was more going on. Uh, and indeed, as, I, as you've already mentioned, I argue that this human rights thinking, this, this, these, these different projects promoting human dignity, limiting state sovereignty, and also creating kind of a conceptual generator as I argue in the book, for viewing individuals as holders of rights in armed conflict, led to quite interesting outcomes. So what I argue in the book is that the convention's leading architects um, played a critical role in contesting a whole range of what some call Nazi-style counterinsurgency policies. Think of hostage-taking or collective penalties. And measures like these were no longer seen as appropriate tools to enforce the laws of war and to safeguard the political order of, of Europe, these policies, these leading architects argue, were not just inhumane or lacking military necessity, but also, and I think this is this is important, a violation of the fundamental rights and dignity of individuals in wartime. So, once drafters in Geneva and elsewhere had agreed to publicly condemn Nazi atrocities such as hostage killings on the basis of these universalistic principles, they were forced to reckon with other measures of counterinsurgency as well, including their own, including those that they were trying to use in the future. So this led to continuing calls for more universalization and less tolerance for brutality in wars, including those involving anti-colonial resistance and irregulars, so meaning partisans or guerrillas people, fighters who do not necessarily comply with Requirements such as wearing your badge or wearing your or carrying your arms openly. To be sure, this these calls did not necessarily lead to an outcome in which everyone involves every civilian involved would be protected against these brutal counterinsurgency policies. There were important gaps in the conventions, all kinds of problems. But the process itself, I think, can be understood um, in in a better way if we. If we take into account this human rights legacy on the making of humanitarian law in the 1940s. Then coming to the last part of your question is how come that we don't, or many of us, don't remember this connection and its, and its significance? I think one important answer to this question, and there are different ways of answering this question, but I think one important part of the answer lies in how the ICRC, so again, the International Committee of Red Cross in Geneva, one of the most important um, advocates behind this passes. course, wanted to have their own conventions, their own um, distinct field of law, their own place within the larger atmosphere and the larger landscape of international law. So they had all kinds of institutional interest in making sure that the conventions were particular, they were reflecting and, and, and applying to specific situations of armed conflict. And that human rights law was distinct and would apply to different situations. That was both institutionally as well as conceptually, the way they wanted to um, uh, draft and design international law and armed conflict as it existed in the nineteen forties. Um, but again, that that changed in the nineteen sixty, but something we can perhaps discuss and uh, later on if 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 you have more questions about this.
2: So That lays out really helpfully for us, as you said, that these negotiations weren't just about political ideology, so those were definitely there. Um, There was also a debate around ideas. Um, And obviously, this book goes into amazing amounts of detail, and the Geneva Conventions in their own right are incredibly complicated. So I couldn't possibly ask you all the questions I have, unfortunately, um, about all the little details about different pieces. So the next few questions are almost sort of a whistle-stop tour of some of the um, most interesting parts, from my perspective, um, of what you describe of the politics of the law, the politics of these debates. So for readers that are interested um, in some of the aspects of the Geneva Conventions that I'm not going to ask about, I can assure you they are probably in the book. Um, but in the interest of time, I can't quite go through every single aspect of um, the book itself. So if you want all of the details, please read it. Um, But in the meantime, I wanted to sort of pick up on two of the strands that we've already mentioned and sort of tie them together. The first of the idea of uh, the perception that having wartime experience was really important for drafting these conventions. And the second that there was one of the gray areas that there was a lot of debate around is this idea of the resistance fighter or the guerrilla fighter. That doesn't neatly fit into the idea of wearing a uniform, having a front line and marching around with your weapons out all the time. And it seems to me that the debates around the rights of resistance in time of occupation in particular um, was quite influenced by wartime experiences of different countries and different particular delegates that were at these uh, conferences. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about what was so tricky around figuring out the rights of resistance in times of occupation and how the context of these debates happening during and after World War II impacted those discussions
1: in particular? yeah, That's a great question. Um, so there is a specific chapter in the book about guerrilla fighters, resistance fighters, partisans, all kinds of different concepts and labels to describe an irregular type of fighter on the battlefield and how that person should be treated according to the laws of war. So in, in that chapter, I try to reconstruct how, why, and under what circumstances the main drafting parties, varying from the United States to the ICRC, so great powers including the Soviet Union, France, Great Britain, the United States, and the ICRC dealt with a right of resistance in times of occupation, and how persons that make use of this right should be treated if captured by the enemy. So I show in that chapter how, especially the Anglo-American drafting contingent, um, sought to exclude irregulars from anti-colonial guerrillas to communist spies and to legalize their extrajudicial policies to deal with these direct threats to their counterinsurgency designs. Um, so on this issue, I think their, their views were, were quite affected or quite colored by all kinds of anxieties caused by rising east-west tensions, decolonization, I think of um, Britain's uh, war in First in Palestine uh, and then in Malaya, and the first of communist fifth columns, especially in the years from 48 up to 49, okay, the last phase of this drafting process. But you can imagine that this triggered quite a, quite a struggle with, with a whole range of drafting actors who had recent experience with partisan warfare, but then usually on their other side is, as partisans or as resistance fighters or even as as spies. Um, so triggering a massive struggle with the French, in particular, as well as the ICRC and the Soviet Union, this is contentious debate with regard to partisan warfare. But eventually, to, I think a much more ambiguous outcome is often presented in the literature so far. And when I was looking at how scholars have looked at these issues in the past, it struck me that um, uh some at least suggested that the, the question of partisans was essentially solved or at least uh, a step was was taken forward in in the 1940s when um so-called placing the resistance fighters or particularly the resistance movements under the pow convention so the convention that protects prisoners of war and i think um There is something quite strange about that assertion or that claim, since if you look at the actual outcome and if you look at the years before 1949, you can see, indeed, that there were quite powerful calls to lower the water-high POW convention threshold for partisans, but that it largely failed when it comes to the outcome. So the relevant article, and I don't have to give all the details here about the specific um, article and the reference, but I think what is important is that there was a Reference to resistance movements. There is a resistance movement's reference in the Pio Convention. But I, I believe, and I argue in the book, that it was not so much meant as a robust protectionist as some think it might have applied, but rather as an instrument to, to end that political deadlock. So, on the one hand, between um, um, Anglo American delegations and continental European delegations, and to a lesser extent, also uh, East Asian delegations, which had uh, separate occupation under the Japanese. Um, so I think this, this reference helped to end the stalemate caused by, on the one hand, continental European pressure to obtain the wider resistance in occupied territory in order to appease political constituents at home. And on the other hand, the restrictive Anglo-American delegations trying to protect their security interests as potential enemies of future partisans. I think that's that's what what really happened, I think this story shows us how these different wartime experiences, particularly for, for for continental Europeans, were in some ways reflected in the text, but then when it came to the actual legal protections uh, that were given under the view of the convention, you can, you, it's difficult not to recognize the, the problems and, and issues that That emerged as a result of this drafting process, particularly for those who might take up arms in the future when when finding powerful occupiers, whether it's in a civil war, colonial war, or interstate occupation.
2: So tell us about that. What what problems did it create? Because this was something that came up quite a lot and showcased in some senses the tension between being responsive to immediately previous events and trying to think about the future.
1: Yeah, I think if you um, look at the present, you can see that there are still um, important discussions going on about how do you deal with irregulars, people who take up arms but do not necessarily carry their arms openly, and who might not always follow all the different rules from the laws of war. Can you isolate these prisoners for some time to interrogate them and potentially even use um, quite some violence or? Pressure upon them to extract information from them about what their compatriots or their comrades might do, might do in the future. And this is obviously a question that is that is that is relevant for the present, if not for the recent past, when it came to um, the Bush administration and its dealings with um, Al Qaeda and Taliban detainees. But again, this is not just a question of the recent past; it's still ongoing. If you um, as long as Guantanamo Bay is open, I think that question remains particularly important for US observers. How can the conventions help? How can the conventions support uh, those who want to advocate, for instance, the closure of Guantanamo Bay, or at least provide those inside of prisons, whether it's Guantanamo Bay or elsewhere on the globe, with a certain amount of protection that uh, ensures them of humane treatment? And certainly protects them against uh, torture and other forms of inhumane treatment. Um, so, so the conventions are in some ways providing those advocates with a whole range of norms and principles that can help them to battle against those who want to uh, use torture or other forms of inhumane treatment. But there are also all kinds of problems in the conventions that make that same effort quite difficult, quite challenging. Whether it's the 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 actual requirements that, that are set for irregulars or people who take up arms, or it's the kind of the powers given to the state to deal with these kinds of prisoners. Um, so I think what I try to to show here, what I try to argue here is that these, this is not just a question of the past. It's very much a question of the present, if not the future, and how we deal with detainees and how we ensure them have sufficient legal protection.
2: Thank you. That was really helpful to to also give a case for the importance of understanding this history um, and the idea that it's not just history, it impacts us today. Um, To go back to the negotiations, um, one thing that was particularly interesting is you focus throughout the book on a number of different actors, right? The Red Cross, we've already spoken a bit about. um, The French, the Americans, the Brits and Soviet Union and their allies are sort of the main actors that um, are discussed. And you explained at the beginning of the interview why their voices were so prominent and why some other voices maybe we would expect were not included. Um, And one thing that was particularly interesting is the roles played by some of these different actors. So um, I'll come to a second asking you about the French, but I wanted to start with the Anglo-Americans who, in some senses, often seem to be sort of on the same side of things, often seem to be wanting maybe somewhat more conservative changes or updates um, than perhaps the French were. Um, but there were some key moments where the British and Americans who it seems wanted to be working together more often than not, were worried about being sort of overwhelmed by different perspectives, um, had some pretty problematic times working together. Um, and you mentioned that this might have been due to personal rivalries, rivalries or issues between some of the Anglo- and American delegates. So again, Thinking about the politics of creating law, the idea that creating international law that goes for decades, that we think of as quite foundational, was nevertheless written by humans, by actual people, Um, and investigating that history. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, the Anglo-American cooperation, particularly issues that impeded that cooperation.
1: Mm. Yeah, drafting was an all-too-human affair. I think that's the first thing I want to want to say in response to that question. It was a truly human affair. It rise to confusion, miscalculations, indeed personal rivalries as well, but also to moments of ingenuity and, and even heroism, I think. So in the book, I put the agency uh, of these draftors uh, front and center. I emphasize how they constantly redefine their ideas, their beliefs, and the boundaries of the world in this this quite unique effort to regulate new uh, laws for armed conflict. And I think you're you're referring to a specific uh, moment or specific episode in the book in which I talk about the making of the right of resistance in, in occupied territory. So this is a discussion in the committee that um, has a conversation about the period convention and its future. And and the, really the question is who should fall under the convention? So who should have the right to take up arms essentially and could still be protected under the laws of war. And what I found um, quite revealing is that of course you can see the structural level certain differences between states and how they, um, prioritise particular ideas, particular visions about periodic protection. And there are indeed some small differences between the Americans and the British, particularly at a kind of political technical level. Uh, but there are also these moments where you can see that characters and, and, and personal rivalries have an effect on uh, how these discussions develop. So there's a particular moment in which um, a UK delegate, Gardner is his name, his last name. He is from the War Office. He's often taking a very kind of defensive, if not aggressive, uh, take on how to deal with partisans. Essentially, he tries to exclude them from the conventions. And then obviously it leads to all kinds of um, tensions with, with NATO allies, particularly France, which tries to uh, protect resistance fighters in interstate occupations. Um, but it also leads to tensions within his own delegation and, of course, with the American delegation. So the Americans, in some ways, are taking very similar positions as the British, um, but sometimes realize a little bit better than the British what, what the uh, uh, political trends are at the diplomatic conference. So they, they're better realize that at some point a specific proposal might be the best for them but, but not, might not necessarily lead to a majority uh, when the voting process takes place. So you can you can imagine that um, uh, there, are, there are also discussions among these very close allies of the British and Americans about what trajectory or what path to take when it comes to um, dealing with partisans. And, and, and Gardner tries to uh, deal with this issue from his perspective, but then uh, gets all kinds of flag, all kinds of resistance from from from, from uh, American delegates, who quickly end up in a kind of what some call oratory duel or a kind of a confront- public confrontation that NATO allies see as, as potentially undermining uh, for, for the alliance and its reputation at this conference. They were terrified that these internal divisions either within delegations or between uh, the British and Americans or just within the NATO alliance were, were, were picked up by journalists and they could then also be used by the Soviets to create Cold War propaganda. And the, the point for Gardner is really about we should get these partisans out of the conventions and he was even willing to, to make the claim or the Suggestion that if that proposal didn't get carried by the conference or didn't get accepted by the conference, then the British should just go home and 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 leave things for what they are. Uh, but then within his delegation, you can see that more diplomatic affiliated or more diplomatic attuned um, colleagues of him push him push back and say, well, you know, maybe it's better to make the drafts workable uh while then going home um so here you can see the clash not just between different characters or personal rivalries between different delegates but also a clash between the war office and the foreign office because these diplomatic attuned officials were usually from the foreign office which realized a little bit better than the war office the delegates that reputation and prestige of britain is, is sometimes more important than getting everything what the general staff or other military officials might want to see in, in the in the drafts. So coming to the last point I want to make here is that these divisions reveal, I think, the, the significant tensions that beset the fragile Anglo-American coalition, if not the British delegation itself, and endangering their uh, bargaining position and, and negotiations as a whole, if not a protection of detainees in the hands of, of future occupiers. And in the book, I gave a whole range of examples of which not just uh, Anglo-American drafters, but also French Soviet drafters and a whole range of other actors threatened to undermine the negotiations by simply going home, or at least making the suggestion that if a certain proposal doesn't get carried, then they might go home and perhaps things should should alter. So this is this is also a process about what roads are taken and which roads are not taken, so to say.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: And this is something I'm going to come to ask you about in a few minutes. Um, But first, I want to stay on this idea of the actors and sort of what impact they had, Um, because I think it is really interesting, the debates and issues between countries, as well as within it, as you said, between the War Office and the Foreign Office. Um, But you have a really interesting sentence, quote, the French played a truly extraordinary role in creating a fairly robust civilian convention, which both uh, highlights to us the idea that civilian convention being robust was not a given. Uh, which again comes out very clearly through that chapter. But I was wondering if you could explain a bit for us why you consider the French to have played an extraordinary role. What was so notable about what they did?
1: Yeah, so um, I think what is is important to keep in mind is the context of changing French perceptions uh, with regard to the laws of war, particularly at the end of the Second World War and in the first years of post-war reconstruction. So I think the rise of a post-Vichy state built upon a kind of a mythical ideal of collective resistance against the German occupation and civilian suffering under fascist occupation played a, a crucial part in, in radically changing French attitudes towards humanitarian law in this, in this moment. And these alter perceptions were institutionalized by a group of former victims of war, from, from resistance fighters to deportees, Um, that were um, uh, asked to become part of a French drafting committee. Uh, That's the way I think to describe them in in, in a short fashion. That would prepare proposals uh, for the French state to be introduced at these different conferences that I've been discussing only in the last uh, 30 minutes or so. And what is interesting about these proposals is that these French... um, victims of war, former victims of war, embraced humanitarian law. They saw the conventions as being critical to not just gaining recognition for the wartime suffering, but also for how France superseded itself back on the international legal stage. So what is what is striking is that throughout the 1940s, the French tried under the pressure of these former victims of war to gain acknowledgement for their wartime efforts and those of the free French forces by, for instance, codifying in the line of collective resistance. And their main objectives, I think, were to, to restrict the occupied powers and, and protect civilians. Goals they attempted to achieve through reimagining uh, notions of, of, of human rights, in particular, for interstate occupation. So that's why I argue that the French played indeed a truly extraordinary role in creating. A fairly robust Civilian Convention. So I say fairly robust because the Civilian Convention is not just imperfect because every legal text is imperfect, but because the French also had to take note of their other interests as a NATO uh, member as well as in finding colonial power in China. So this meant that, of course, they could push for greater protection for civilians, but they could push for recognition of the resistance in occupied territory. But how do you square that with being a brutal counterinsurgency power in Indochina? And that's a question I need to need to get back to throughout this entire process, especially as the Indochina War escalated during that same same period. So among other things, they removed uh, the references, for instance, to colonial wars in the text, and it prevented the Article that was particularly relevant to wars within states from recognizing the Viet Minh as a as a belligerent. So you can see here that on the one hand they, they they played that quite unique, quite remarkable role in pushing for a very ambitious text for the Civilian Convention, in part because they wanted to see recognition of the wartime suffering. On the other hand, they couldn't ignore their interest as a NATO member or as a as a struggling colonial power in. Southeast Asia.
2: And this, I think, sort of very nicely takes us to, again, this tension of what has happened and what will happen. Um, And amongst a lot of the elements of the debates around the Geneva Convention is a struggle around universal jurisdiction versus state sovereignty. Um, And it seems to have played out in particular, as you said, around this idea of uh, what is a civil war and how much does international law apply to it? Um, but across a number of different issues as well. So as much as this is a massive, massive, vague question that I'm about to throw at you, um, if you could sort of, what are the main points to understand for the debates during this key moment um, between universal jurisdiction versus state sovereignty? um, And how did this then play out? And what are the legacies that we're left with now?
1: Yeah, so... um... (sighs) I think I first need to briefly explain what universal jurisdiction means in this in these debates. So there is a a separate chapter on the question of enforcement. How do you make sure that um, parties to non-conflict will follow the law? Uh, how do you um, deal with those that might break the law? And how do you prevent uh, those who might be intending to break the law to actually do it? So, how do you create incentives for compliance? And so on and so forth. Um, and one of the key issues in this debate was how do you um, how do you deal with those that break the law, essentially? So the question of criminal repression, essentially. And that's a quite difficult question for humanitarians, both now as well as in the past. Should humanitarian law be about punishment, about criminality? about um, putting people in jail? Or should it be about assistance, about creating incentives for states to follow the law rather than punishing them if they break it? Um, So the plans for universal jurisdiction or the proposals for for instance, a international criminal court with universal jurisdiction that would force states to punish and extradite violators and also undermining their sovereignty in critical ways was, was a very contentious proposal. And I think if you want to recapture that debate in just a few phrases, I think you can best understand it as a struggle, as a struggle between two very powerful blocks and contrasting notions of sovereignty and, and justice in the late 1940s. On the one on the one side, there was a quite diverse group. Of Soviet and Anglo American delegates. That might be a bit surprising considering the Cold War divisions, but there was quite some overlap in their interest. And this is one example. And, and they were concerned to oppose um, restraints on their sovereign power, essentially, particularly the Soviet Union. In many cases, the Soviet Union played quite a progressive role, uh, pushing for civilian protection, uh, the recognition of line of resistance, and so on and so forth. But when it came to enforcement, they were very staunch, they were very um, uh, eager to protect their sovereign power as much as possible. And I explain in the book why they did so. So that's, that's one camp, one side. And on the other were the continental European powers plus the ICRC, which defended a far more robust system of enforcement. So in various debates, demanded protecting powers, inquiry, and criminal repression as well. However, uh, both sides did agree on the premise that these principles should not be extended to colonial em- emergencies, as I was talking about earlier on uh, as well. So the outcome of these discussions, then, was a set of common articles that rested heavily on the will of the state. So getting back to your question about sovereignty, and I think that had all kinds of implications, uh, especially for today's struggles I think, to fight against impunity on, on the battlefield. But, but those are kind of the broad strokes, the broader kind of overview of the debate. Maybe it's interesting to take out, to focus on one particular actor in this debate uh, and how it changed its mind quite radically over time.
0: That is the United
1: States. So you would expect one of the main advocates of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials to, to push for criminal repression to be in the conventions. And indeed, that's what the United States delegation did, at least at the start of this draft. So, in the wake of the Nuremberg moment, they, they coined all kinds of proposals to put war crimes provisions in the conventions. But then at the end of this fracking process, around 48, 49, they switched, they changed their mind. Um, uh, so they did not um, they no longer uh, supported um, ideas of criminal oppression as being part of the conventions. And 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 of course, the question is why? How come did they change their minds so radically at that time? I think what is, what is important is the context here of, of the emerging Cold War. So, US drafters, I think, saw ideas of universal jurisdiction as a potential threat to their interest in the emerging Cold War. So, at this stage, the foreign policy objectives of the Truman administration began to gradually prioritize the struggle against the Soviet Union. In line with this, uh it sought to bring Germany and Japan, so two former kind of targets of war crimes um, trials into the Western Alliance by winding down the entire US war crimes project. So this is not just relevant for the conventions, but for all kinds of trials that are taking place across the globe, so not just in Europe, but also in Asia. So in this case, I think the political mass of post-war reconstruction, decolonization, and the Cold War were seen as more important than the moral imperative to learn lessons from the past. So that um, um, uh, those who violate the law might get punished for it after the war is over, or even if they get captured earlier, during the war. So I think drafters gave up on the issue of uh, criminal uh, repression out of a uh, fear of, of undermining their state sovereignty in ways. And that meant that they allowed states to basically prosecute their own violators, despite knowing that that idea had failed in the recent past, particularly after the First World War. Um, so I think by rendering virtually a uh, non-existent d the, the, the obligation that states should extradite their own suspect, drafters are willing to accept the risk of impunity. And, and, and that's not a very, um, optimistic outcome when it comes to the question of enforcement, even though, uh, we can recognize that the, um, grave breaches, uh, um, provisions of the conventions, so the criminal repression elements of the conventions have been, uh, Uh, perhaps not very successful during the Cold War, but it did become part of the uh, legal guidebook of the ICC as it exists now in in The Hague. So it has certain long-term legacies that we need to recognize. But when it came to the immediate decades after 1949, you can see that the uh, great powers were successful in uh, basically pushing the card of sovereignty over the the needs of of justice and and humanity.
2: And this is exactly the sorts of debates that come out really helpfully and as you said it's a massive question that makes sense when you look at it in specific so thank you for going into that um and to continue on the idea of something quite specific um, one thing that you go into quite a lot of detail about and i'm glad because it's certainly coming in as a reader was something i was interested in and glad that you addressed um which was why did the civilian convention why was it silent on air and nuclear bombing? Given how much of a threat they had been to civilians in the pros in the immediate context of these negotiations, and how clear it was to everyone involved that this was a trend that was likely to continue. So why why, despite all the things that were put in, was there nothing in the final version on this particular type of threat to civilians?
1: Yeah, so considering the time we live in and the, the violence that we're witnessing coming from from the air. It might be perplexing, it might be surprising that the Soviet Convention said so little, very little, about um, the protection of, of civilians against uh, air bombing. Uh, and it includes nuclear warfare as well as indiscriminate bombing. Um, of course, the Soviet Convention has all kinds of references to that threat right? by suggesting the creation of safety zones and so on and so forth. But the, none of these references were, or none of these provisions were mandatory in the sense that a party to an armed conflict immediately needs to, or needed to, create a safety zone in case air warfare breaks out. In fact, the British and Americans had successfully pushed back against that idea, making the creation of safety zones non-mandatory. But I think that's just a minor issue compared to looking at of the larger picture of how air bombing and nuclear warfare were isolated from the final draft. And the question is why. So I think many uh, scholars have argued that Geneva laws, such as Geneva Conventions, uh, concern the protection of victims of war, uh, varying from wounded soldiers to uh, prisoners of war. Whereas Hague laws and Hague Conventions uh, concern the regulation of the war's conduct, so the conduct of hostilities, which would include air warfare. And I think this is a very popular design argument, and it still resonates today. But what it what it misses, what it fails to explain, is that throughout the 1920s, 1930s, as well as the 1940s, which are all in the book, um, different drafters from different backgrounds uh, discussed in detail the regulation of the conduct of air bombing as part of the Geneva Conventions. So that's perplexing. How come that um, we think or we might Think that uh, the Geneva Convention are essentially a protection of victims of war against, for instance, torture. Uh, but in reality, um, those very same advocates of the conventions were discussing air bombing in great detail during this period. So I show in the book that the ICRC and a whole range of other advocates discussed air bombing immediately as it became politically relevant. So, especially from the first, around the start of the First World War up to the late 1940s when finalizing their proposals. So both questions, or so air bombing and nuclear warfare, played a far more central role in drafting conventions than is often assumed. But then the question is indeed, how come that we see so little of that in the final text? And I think then we need to go back to the Anglo-American powers. Uh, I think the major Western powers, and they could also include other NATO allies or other NATO powers, uh, play a critical part in suppressing attempts by their socialist, neutralist, or ICRC officials to place limitations upon what I think was essentially or virtually unrestrained air power in the 1940s. Um, I was also able to find all kinds of references in internal um, British and American uh, text about how they were preparing for all kinds of different air wars in the future, particularly targeting, of course, the Soviet Union. And they made all kinds of references to, for instance, extermination with recognized weapons of war. So this is a quote from from a British archival document they found. And that's just horrifying. It's an extraordinary um, recognition of the fact that they thought that air bombing could have extremely destructive um, effects on civilians, but that these are so-called recognized weapons of war and they needed to be legalized through international law, not so much by saying air bombing or indiscriminate bombing of, of cities is legal, but rather by isolating those attempts to put restraints on that same weapon. That's how they try to legalize and justify their, those weapons through international law. And I think what is striking is that they later justify these restrictive efforts by considering both matters, so air warfare and, and nuclear warfare, as belonging exclusively to hate law rather than Geneva. I think that's the the game as it was played in the 1940s, as well as the decades afterwards. So, by replicating this, this, I think, very deceptive justification, as the region of Geneva had stayed silent on the matter of air warfare, scholarship has created a form of historical silence, relegating to oblivion the enormous struggle that took place to prevent a diplomatic conference from regulating indiscriminate warfare, and with critical consequences for how we understand the conventions today. And indeed, there's in the book also lots of discussion about how the Soviet Union tried to push back against that silence, or try to at least put some restraints on air warfare, as they knew that they might be the most important target of Anglo American indiscriminate bombing in the future.
2: And this was something that really was quite interesting, um, and I think explained the lack um, really clearly. I certainly was not aware that. There had been all these debates ahead of time. So I found this particularly interesting part of the book. Um, And now to sort of move away from the really specific little bits to kind of your overall assessment of it, um, which is that the Geneva Conventions made a lot of changes to international laws that had previously been understood, um, but also left some things out on purpose that ended up being quite impactful to how international law was able or not able to intervene in wars since then so how would you sort of sum up the kind of limits or successes of the 1949 geneva conventions in some ways was it maybe disappointing um but how was it in other ways not at all limited
1: hmm. yeah, if you look at the chapter and air bombing you might easily get the impression that that it was an extremely disappointing and limited outcome of, of, of what has been discussed in the in the years between forty four and forty nine, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate view, and, and and I have great sympathy for it. But the book, of course, also talks about other issues, and warfare is about a lot of different things other than air bombing, for instance, or nuclear warfare. Um, the idea of regulating armed conflict is a very problematic one, as, as we all know. It's been something very paradoxical, something very hierarchical, and it's something that creates puzzling questions. Like, how do, you, how do you actually do it? How do you regulate war through law? And is that something that is morally acceptable? Or should we perhaps focus our moral energy, our spare moral energy, on something like preventing war or trying to end war? Uh, so that's a continuing debate in the history of the laws of war. Uh, And it's also a debate that was was, uh, being held among the drafters of the conventions. But then when it comes to some of the more successful, I'm I'm saying that very carefully word success or failure, but when it comes to, for instance, the civilian convention, or the parts of the conventions that deal with civil wars, I think there is a lot in the text that can be used in very effective and progressive ways to create emancipatory changes in our time. And I think there's a reason for why humanitarians today, as well as victims of war or survivors of of, of violence, still invoke the conventions. Not just because they want to create a certain international legitimacy for the respective political project, but also because they think think very deeply about um, how law can protect them against all kinds of violence in our conflict, even if law is always imperfect and can never protect victims of war in the exact way as the texts say. But it can be a useful tool, an instrument, to create that immense change I was, I was talking about earlier. And I think that legacy of Geneva needs to be recognized as well. If not for more historical reasons, the attempt to discuss warfare and its regulation in, in the broadest sense of the word. What I found most extraordinary about this story is that Draft just talked about basically everything involving uh, the question of warfare, whether it's sovereignty in wartime, whether it's the question of justice in wartime, whether it's about humanity or humanitarian assistance in wartime. They discussed the Holocaust and its, its international legal significance, and what lessons to draw from that past. They discussed a whole range of different sorts of violence and whether that violence needs to be covered in international law, perhaps domestic law. I think that effort um, is, is extraordinary, especially if you look at our time in which humanitarians and diplomats are finding it extremely hard even to get those great powers on the same table and discuss the need to uh, protect humanity from its worst impulses and that's something that um, a lot of diplomats tell me when 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 I meet them and talk about for instance the geneva conventions in their history they tell me can we do it again and, and and they find it very difficult to even comprehend a scenario in which all the great powers, if not states from across the globe will get together and discuss contemporary challenges such as cyber warfare or other um, uh, tactics and weapons in warfare. That are considered new, but but need regulation. Uh, I think that's something that 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 I'm quite in awe of that, that these drafters were able to 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 pull it off to, to get the world together. Uh, obviously, not everyone, and in very problematic ways at times. Uh, but they did try, and, and that's and that's 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 already quite remarkable. I think.
2: I would agree that that definitely came across. That it was like, wow, that they all came together to do these things. Okay, I again, cannot quite imagine something like that happening now. Um, So it was particularly going into the detail and seeing the human side um, and the changes over time, in some cases over quite quick amounts of time. Um, I remember at least one instance where it seemed like the entire US position changed in the space of eight months or something. Um, That was quite fascinating. So I've obviously learned a lot from this book um, and found a lot of things surprising. But I always ask this as my penultimate question, um, you were obviously in the actual weeds of this, in all the different archives, um, looking at all the things. Was there anything in particular that was really surprising or interesting to you? Um, doesn't have to be something big. Maybe it's something that didn't actually make it into the final book. Um, but this is always a fun question to ask, particularly for people doing archival work. Was there something that sort of jumped out at you that you're still thinking about?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um... So I've been able to uh, retrieve some documents from uh, former Soviet archives on how the Soviet Union and its partners from Eastern Europe were um, thinking about the regulation of for Fruit Law in the 1940s. And there were quite a lot of interesting remarks in these documents about the drafting process and also about the ICRC, for instance. Um, while I'm not a expert in Russian history or Soviet history, I tried to reconstruct Soviet legal visions in the 1940s as much as possible. And despite the limited availability of of many of these archives, the reason why I could um, uh, gain at least some uh, Soviet archival materials was because of the political term, uh, not so much turmoil, but political shifts in Ukraine since the revolution that made it possible for me to gain materials from Ukrainian archives about how the Soviets were looking at this process. And and those documents were really interesting, in part because they showed why the Soviets, for instance, were very reluctant initially to get on board on this process, and also why they were very suspicious of a humanitarian organization like the ICRC. The ICRC has a pretty solid and good reputation, particularly in Western Europe and North America in the 1940s, uh, but it was, it was not so well considered in, in the Soviet Union or in other parts of uh, the so-called Soviet Empire in the 1940s. They were deeply suspicious of what they considered to be a proto-fascist organization, and that might be surprising to those who um, have a very positive view of the ICRC, who might see it as a deeply or truly humanitarian organization, Rather than something that um, um, tries to do something that that sounds that looks fascist or pro-fascist, so the Soviets were coming to this view because they um, they first felt that the ICRC had um, uh, been too closely aligned with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy during the Second World War, and then it shifted in allegiance to Britain and the United States after the um, uh, downfall of Hitler as well as Mussolini. So they, they saw it first as a um, kind of puppet of fascist states. And then in the late 1940s, they saw it as a puppet of, of bourgeois capitalism. That's something I, I didn't see, obviously, in, in Western archives, because they're very different experiences and ideas of the ICRC and the Red Cross movement. But it did explain why the Soviets only participated at the very end of this process. That is the diplomatic conference in 1949. And also, why they were so reluctant to accept outside supervisors like the ICRC, because they essentially saw them as as allies or puppets of their uh, enemy as part of the Cold War. So that was a quite surprising element, of, I think, in the research in my book. Even though I was not able to collect a great deal of, of archival documents from from Eastern Europe as I had hoped.
2: Thank you for sharing that. That is really interesting. Um... And my final question is always, and this always seems a bit mean for people whose books have literally just come out, um, but I'm always curious. So now that this book is done, what are you working on now or next?
1: Yeah, so I've I've, um, started with this project uh, about a year ago, at the University of Melbourne, um, where I'm doing a postdoc. And the project is still about the Geneva Conventions, but then about the years and decades after 1949. And I focus much less on the making of law, but rather the practice of law. So what I do in a new project is to write a global history of the convention's practice in the decades between 49 and 1977, when the conventions were last revised. And I focus on specific armed conflicts and then core legal issues within each of these armed conflicts. So I've just came back from Nigeria where I've done archival research into the civil war from the late 1960s. This the Nigerian Civil War is probably most well known because of the starvation of Biafran civilians during this armed conflict. And the question of what is what can be humanitarian assistance uh, in a situation of blockade. The secession is um, Part of the countries so that the biafran nationalists were blockaded by the federal government, and that created all kinds of questions about how can international law reach those who are affected by blockades, so who are facing um, isolation, if not outright starvation, as a result of these policies, and can humanitarians break the sovereignty of the blockading state, and if it can, or if they can, under what circumstances, and what can the state do in return? Um, so that's just one case study, uh, but there are also other ones in Algeria, for instance, South Africa, uh, on political prisoners, and Vietnam on air bombing that I'm working on now. And I think the, the, the bigger point I want to make in the book is to get a sense of what global South actors, varying from rebels or secessionist groups like the Biafra nationalist or anti-colonial activists or post-colonial states, how they laid the foundations of, of contemporary notions of law in armed conflict, and of course, how law is actually invoked. How is it interpreted in wartime? That's, that's, that's basically the, my new project in a nutshell.
2: Well, that sounds very interesting. So I hope that when that book is done, you will come back onto the podcast and we can hear more about it. Um, but in the meantime, while you're busy off writing that, um, listeners can go ahead and read your current book, which is titled Preparing for War, The Making of the Geneva Conventions published by Oxford University Press this year 2022 Dr. Boyd Van Dyke thank you very much for sharing your time with us